Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Guy McLean Rogers. He is professor of classics and history at Wellesley College, uh, a, a well-published scholar with a new book entitled For the Freedom of Zion, The Great Revolt of Jews Against the Romans, 66 to 74 AD. Our topic today. Welcome, Professor Rogers. Well, thank you very much for having me. First, uh, this book, big, big book. Lots of material in there, lots of historical scholarship. And I, I would ask you to note, because some of the features of, of the book in the appendices, a lot of material, just basic information about the high priests, their Roman administrators, uh, maps, uh, different different campaigns. What, what, what information, actually, can you just tell us quickly, what information do you provide in, in the appendices, a little more specifically? Well, what I try to do in the appendices is um, cater to different kinds of uh, audiences. For instance, um, I start out with um, an appendix about the sources for the the war because I want to let people know where I get my information from. And then, of course, there's a, a chronology to help people sort of stay on top of where we are in the um, narrative. And then there are some appendices which really kind of go into a little bit more detail about um, issues that um, are sort of controversial among scholars, like um, what the sources of um, the money was for um, for Herod the Great. And then then some of them are kind of charts, like um, who the high priests are. Um, who the Roman governors and administrators are, um, and and then um, there are some very uh, detailed appendices about the sort of supply requirements of the different Roman armies that were sent out to um, to Judea for and the Galilee for the war, and um, I mean that. That part of the book, uh, the appendices, the appendices that have to do with the logistics, um, I think are pretty original. Um, I made a huge effort uh, to try to get on top of what it would cost to supply um, a number of Roman armies and and also all their pack animals and all the rest of it. So, um, so you know, I'm trying to help um, readers at various levels of uh, uh, kind of yeah. introductory material, but also scholars if they want more information. Yeah, I, I bring it up just to let listeners know the 
daunting amount of scholarship that has gone into the book. I mean, it's, it's an assemblage of research that was like a, a long, long years of effort. It will serve classicists and historians, especially graduate students in the fields, I think very well, who just need things like chronologies, like names and, and dates. And apart from all that, I'll, I'll add for our listeners that when we get to the text proper, the actual story, uh, going going back several decades before the, the outbreaks, that we really have a lively narrative in place. Lots of good stories, lots of strong characters, and and you begin in the preface. You you give a, a little a little teaser about how it all started with a tiny dispute over some birds. Some, 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 just some birds. I mean, what happened there? Right. Um, you know. Um, all authors were looking to sort of catch people's attention at the beginning. So um, after a lot of thought, I decided that I would start with this um, incident um, that took place in the um, the coastal city of um, Caesarea in um, 66 um, CE or AD. And basically in that uh, town, there were both um, Greeks or people that their sources called Syrians and then Jews. And a guy, a Greek guy, decided that he would um, somewhat provocatively um, make a sacrifice of some birds um, either right next to or in an alleyway next to a, a synagogue in Caesarea. And um, that really started a reaction among Jews, and that sort of escalated into a situation where um, the Roman government really didn't um, do very much to try to defuse the situation, and it spread from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And when the government in Jerusalem decided that it wanted to quell the protest there, they ended up massacring um, a bunch of Jewish civilians, and that really was the, the start of the war. And as I always say to people, once a government, especially an occupying power, um, sheds a lot of blood, um, especially in a in a in a place like Jerusalem, where clearly a lot of people knew each other and were related, interrelated, um, it's hard for that. It's hard to put that back. Um, into the box, as it were, and so it was a small incident that uh, that lit off a, a a big fire, as it were. Hmm. You jump then by going. Oh, actually, after after that that opening, you go back. You back. You go, you go back in time to uh, some fellow named Herod, and you ask, was Herod really so horrible as all that? Who was this Herod? You know, Herod was uh, one of the most interesting characters in all of ancient history. He um, had been um, appointed um, king of Judea, actually by the Romans in 40 BCE, and uh, for the next three decades or so, until 4 BCE, when he died, he more or less had um, kept a lid on things in a very difficult um, neighborhood. Um, he was a, a, a great builder and also um, a soldier, a, a, a war chief, as it were. And 
um, a really savvy politician in in many many ways. On the other hand, um, he was very heavy-handed with members of his own family who who he thought uh, might threaten his power, and he also liked. Uh, to enjoy life, um, had a lot of wives, uh, a lot of children, uh, didn't always get along with all of them, and he ended up uh, putting many of them to to death. Um, but I think the more serious point about, about Herod is that as an individual, Herod sort of found a way to be both a, um, a Jew and um, a Jew who uh, was responsible for um, Sort of rebuilding on a massive scale the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and and also sort of oversaw the um, the renovation of the temple itself, and also be a um, a Roman as well. So he he sort of set out a model for how you could be both a Jew and a Roman. But there obviously were a lot of people who thought that that was not possible. That um, you couldn't serve both Caesar and God and in some ways, that's really one of the dominant themes of the of the book, um, how people can um, be on the one hand uh, pious and you know true to their own religion, but on the other hand uh, stay on the the right side of the Roman authorities. And by 66 CE, um, enough people were convinced that you couldn't do that. That um, the most important revolt in the history of the Roman Empire broke out. You mentioned a few moments ago uh, a Greek involved in this initial conflict. What were, during this time generally, what were the tensions between Greeks and Jews? You know, it's interesting. Um, I, When I started out writing this book, uh, the book started, um, in fact, with uh, the sort of transit of uh, Alexander the Great through the region in 332-31. You know, before Alexander, there were very few uh, Greeks um, or or Romans, for that matter, in the neighborhood. But after Alexander uh, came through the region, and uh, especially after his death in 323, a lot of Greeks. Uh, were left in the region or moved to the region, and um, so the fir- for the first time, really, um, as a result of this sort of change, demographic changeover, um, which was accelerated by the the Ptolemies in Egypt, one of the successor kingdoms of Alexander, and then the Seleucids in what they called Syria. Um, for the first time, there were um, a lot of um, polytheists, as it were, um, living in and among Jews. And there were places, um, found city foundations and towns, where um, people got along sort of tolerably well, but there were other places where that wasn't true. And um, so one of the causes, certainly, of the war um, was the tension, were the tensions among Greeks and Jews and others um, in the region during the first century. So this is uh, definitely um, a large part of the story. Yeah. Herod ruled for quite a while, but what happened after his death, right after his death? So right after his death, 
um, one of his sons, a guy named Archelaus, was appointed to be kind of um, the ruler um, of Judea. Actually, he didn't inherit uh, Herod's ship. I think that the reigning emperor, Augustus, was uh, a little bit uh, concerned that Archelaus didn't really have what it took uh, to stay on top of things. So he made him into what they called an ethnarch of Judea, and then Samaria, which is just north of the territory of Judea, and then Idumaya to the sort of south and a little bit west of it. So, and, you know, uh, Archelaus is one of these guys who uh, early on in his career as ethnarch um, tried to disassociate himself from his father and Herod and his policies, but ended up actually being... Um, or not falling too far from that tree, and uh, used some sort of uh, heavy-handed uh, methods to um, to keep the population um, uh, sort of in order, and ended up offending both the Jews and also the Samaritans. And Augustus had to, the Roman Emperor Augustus, had to depose him and exile him. And at that point. Um, a, uh, a Roman governor known as a, a praefectus or a prefect uh, was sent out. And so from about 60 to 41, a series of Roman uh, prefects were, were in the region based either in uh, Caesarea or um, traveling to Jerusalem to try to administer the area under the supervision of the the big governor up in, um, up in You know, was the overall attitude in, in Rome, there at the capital, toward the provinces, one of, look, you, the leader out there, uh, you just keep the money coming in, uh, don't let things get out of hand, keep the peace, keep everything more or less stable, and that's good enough for us. Or was there... Uh, uh, some push on the part of Rome to try to do more culturally in in the faraway places, maybe to to inspire more loyalty to Rome, to to Romanize these populations. It, it's hard to it's hard to answer that question um, other than in a really specific sense. Uh, I mean, overall. Uh, I think there's no doubt that over the first three centuries of the Roman Empire, um, or say the the Principate, so from the time of Augustus into the to the time of Constantine, one of the reasons why the Romans were um, so successful, as it were, is because they really tried to do so little. Um, they didn't require um, a huge amount of um, cultural. Um, I would say affiliation. Basically, people had to pay their taxes and and keep the peace. Uh, the Romans didn't like big political organizations and things like that. Judea, on the other hand, I think is a is a different um, and somewhat special case because um, in Judea um, the Romans. Uh, had been there on the ground in numbers, actually since the time of 
um, the Roman general Pompey in sort of 64, 63 BCE. And there were a lot of Romans that knew a lot about Jews and Judaism. There also were um, a lot of Jews who um, were interested anyway in Rome. And even if they weren't really interested in assimilating into Roman culture, um, they didn't necessarily have any problem with being interested in Roman culture and practices. At the same time, of course, there were, there were lines, and one of the lines uh, that turned out to be a sort of flashpoint was the institution of the Roman imperial cult, which had kind of been organized very early on in um, Octavian slash Augustus's um, reign, which was basically an institution um, to gather support uh, around and project um, Roman values in the provinces. And of course, you know, that was a real problem for, for most Jews because even though most living Roman emperors um, were really hesitant to demand divine honors for themselves, certainly their ancestors, in Augustus's case, like Julius Caesar, would have had in other places divine honors paid to them. And of course, that would have been uh, impossible in, in Jerusalem and in Judea. So, so. You know, in answer to your question, I think that there are a lot, there were a lot of um, Romans who did understand that this, that Judea was a special case. Um, they had a religion and a book which was unique in the Roman Empire. Um, and so they had to tread lightly, but not all the governors um, seemed to get the message. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Let's go to a super specific question. <laughs> These fascinating sure. characters. Who were the, quote, dagger men? And, and what role did they play in the story? Right, the dagger men um, were a group of people who... Um, originally arose in the context of the disputes that were going on during the first century CE between and among both Jews and also um, Roman governors and the, the limited number of um, soldiers that they had um, in the in the province itself. And um, it's a little unclear whether these guys um, were originally um, just sort of paid assassins or whether they, at least some of them, were also kind of um, nationalist uh, resistors. 
And the, the reason why it's hard to uh, differentiate them is that in um, the text of Josephus, who's our main narrative source for the, for the war itself, he has reasons um, for wanting to kind of paint them with a, um, a broad brush. Um, but they end up being people who certainly are used by, um, by both Roman and Jews to, um, to assassinate their, their enemies, especially in the city of Jerusalem, as we sort of wind um, up to uh, the outbreak of the revolt and then during the early stages of the revolt. Okay, we have the revolt, this, this, uh, this dispute, it expands, it explodes. What, what in the world gave the Jews the confidence or the will to oppose this Roman giant? Yeah, you know, that is, uh, it's one of the questions that I really set out to answer. I started studying this material way back in the late 1970s, and um, it was one of the first things that kind of caught my, caught my eye as well. I think that in the local situation, there were a lot of um, people who really were not all that impressed with the the local um, military um, uh, uh, auxiliary soldiers. So in, in Judea itself, most of the people serving under the Roman governors um, were people who were locally recruited, and they were the ones um, who were responsible for those massacres um, early on in the, in the early summer of 66. And um, there, were, there were certainly um, lots of people, uh, lots of Jews in uh, the Galilee and especially in Judea and Idumea who had served in um, some of these units um, under Herod or his successors. So I don't think that they really um, were very afraid of these auxiliaries. Taking on the Roman legions, you know, is um, you know, obviously kind of a different a different story. I don't think it was 100% clear during the summer of '66 that that was going to be the the outcome of um, the initial stages of the war. But um, once those massacres happened and um, a Roman governor came down um, from Antioch uh, with some real Roman legions and was sort of ambushed on the road um, to Jerusalem and suffered very heavy casualties. I think at that point, um, a lot of people were probably um, scratching their heads a bit and saying, well, maybe we can actually get rid of these people here. So early early success and maybe over overconfidence. That said, you know, uh, parts of the revolt um, went on after this for seven or eight years. So um, when you consider that there was no real Judean army, um, that these were mostly civilians, um, who took up arms, they did pretty well. Yeah. 
Yeah. Your, your, your descriptions of, of battles and, and skirmishes, conflicts, is, is detailed. You can, you can see that they did pretty well. The, the Jews did pretty well in some of these, in some of these episodes. Let me ask you about one, one figure, one character in your story. Who was, I hope I do my pronunciation correctly, uh, who was John of Giscala? Right. Um, John of Giscala was a, a sort of um, a local leader from the, the north of Israel or the, um, the border area of Galilee and Golan Heights, who, um, like a lot of these uh, local, important, wealthy people, um, was probably sitting on the fence at the at the beginning of the war. There's some evidence that he uh, was involved in relations with the Romans at the early earliest part of the war, but eventually sort of turned over to the the hardcore rebel side uh, of things. And um, after his hometown was sort of um, uh, captured by the Romans, made his way down to uh, Jerusalem and became one of the the true hardcore leaders of the of the revolt and I think we have a very distorted view of John of Giscala because um, he and Josephus were sort of uh, rivals for who was really going to be the the leader the head guy um, in the north. Um, during the the early period of the revolt, so sort of the period around 67 or so. And, um, I mean, Josephus uh, has literally nothing good to say about him and a lot of very bad things to say about him. But, you know, the more you read all the bad things that he has to say about him, and then you consider some of the things that Josephus himself did, um, you begin to wonder whether, you know, John of Giscala isn't kind of a mirror being held up to uh, Josephus in some sense. So, so he's a rebel leader, an important one of the one of the handful of the most important uh, leaders of the rebellion. Another thing that stands out uh, in your story is that just just the volume of death that 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 happened during during the rebellion. You say. In the temple, in, in, in the destruction of the temple, 6,000 Jews were killed, correct? Right. Let me add also, did the Romans really want to destroy the temple? Of course, that's one of the most uh, important and uh, controversial questions about the entire war. And ever since the destruction of the temple in the uh, latest summer of, of 70, that's been debated um, by by everybody. My own opinion is that um, probably um, Titus and his father Vespasian, uh, if they'd if they'd had their way, which would have been nobody resist at all, uh, do what we tell you, and uh, everything will be all right, then they probably wouldn't have wanted to destroy the temple. But when when the resistance to the Roman siege was as um, committed and ferocious as it was, and 
they got down, as it were, to kind of the um, the fortifications around the Temple Mount itself. The Romans had suffered um, large numbers of casualties, and you know, even Josephus can't hide the fact that the people that were um, defending the uh, the walls of Jerusalem and then the Temple Mount um, really showed absolutely no inclination to surrender under any circumstances. And so at the end of a long summer um, of fighting against these guys, um, by the time they broke through into the top of the, the Temple Mount, I think that Titus um, lost control of the Roman army and the Roman army um, that made it up into the area of the temple really um, lost its discipline and it became just a, a total massacre uh, up there. So it's, it's unfortunate, uh, terrible, really, uh, that, that, that that number of 6,000 or so is kind of um, the low number um, that a lot of historians estimate for the the number of people who were killed in the last couple of days of the destruction of the temple. And what was Jerusalem like after it was all over? So it's, it's important just to add that after the Romans destroyed the, the temple, that that didn't end the fighting in Jerusalem because um, um, a large group of the of the rebels um, sort of either escaped uh, off the Temple Mount or had already left the Temple Mount and gone into the other parts of the city. And they fought back uh, from the other parts of the city as well, which led to the Romans um, massacring, burning and massacring um, different sections of the city. They didn't destroy the, the whole city, but the um, the parts to the south of the Temple Mount and to the uh, to the east of it, they destroy, destroyed large parts of it. Um, and um, a large percentage of the of the population of Jews um, were massacred or enslaved from within the city. Um, some Jews probably continued to live within the uh, what had been the walls, um, but a small percentage. Um, so the city wasn't destroyed, but there was systematic destruction of the temple and also um, the sort of the buildings around it, including some of the, the famous stoas um, as well. So that part was absolutely purposeful and um, one of the one of the points that I try to make in my chapter on the destruction of the temple and the aftermath is that by the time um, Titus and Vespasian came around to um, celebrating their, their victory in this war in 71, and then in the aftermath, putting up buildings and inscriptions in Rome, um, there's there's no no sort of hint about any um, hesitation about what they had done 
in um, Jerusalem. In fact, they lied about it. Um, um, they put up, had an inscription put up in the Circus Maximus in Rome saying that they had conquered Jerusalem for the first time, which wasn't true. It had been conquered several times before. So, so they didn't back away from what they had done. They used it um, to prop up their, um, their dynasty, un unfortunately. There's much, much more to discuss in, in the book. Uh, what happened in Masada, um, what life was like under, under a Roman siege uh, inside a city, and, and many other characters to discuss. But for now, the book is For the Freedom of Zion, The Great Revolt of Jews Against the Romans, 66 to 74 AD. Professor Rogers, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.